WPSC, the only radio station ever at William Patterson University. I am your professor, David Kirk Philp, along with a silent, non-existent doctor, Esteban Marconi. He is either on assignment or about to call in. One or the other, it's his choice. We also, that was the music of Rob Fusari, Do Not Let Love Down, but he used the consonant and he called it Don't Let Love Down. We're going to have a great guest, John Scher, coming up, concert promoter. Uh, in just another second, we're going to have Jim Donio, president of the Music Biz Association. Real quick, we should introduce you to our student co-host of the evening. Her name is Gina Royale. Gina Royale! Gina Royale! Hi! How are you? Get closer to the mic. I'm good. How are you? It's never better. Oh, Actually, I've been better, but but it's good to have you here, Gina. Gina's a pop student here at William Patterson University. How long have you been here, Gina? Uh, since beginning of fall semester. Oh, okay. Very good. How come you're, you chose William Patterson University? Um, really honest. He gave me a lot of money. There's nothing wrong with honesty. See, yeah. William Patterson is loaded. No student has ever paid to go here. <laughs> we also have an awesome producer. Her name is Bianca Russo. Her name is Bianca Russo. Awesome producer. So John Share coming up in about seven minutes. But right now we want to pull up Jim Donio, James Donio to you and I. He is the president of the Music Biz Association, who has been awesome. And we want you to save the date for May 16th through the 18th, 2016, when Music Biz goes to the Music Biz in the Music City. We'll be there. We will be, meaning this radio show, in Nashville with a whole slew of William Patterson Music Biz students interviewing industry, interviewing industry pros, making connections. And James Donio, are you on? I'm here. It is so good to have you. How are you doing this fine evening? I'm good. I'm good. We're excited. We're in the countdown. When we last spoke, uh, we were starting to promote the event. Uh, now we're in the run-up, you know, five, six weeks to go. We're so pumped. We've, we've got a, a great group coming from William Patterson. I think we've got about 20 so far, but we'd love to have more. Uh, as you said, the conference dates are May 16th through the 18th. That's Monday through Wednesday at the Renaissance Nashville Hotel, right off of Broadway, across from the historic Ryman Auditorium, downtown Nashville. There's a great uh, registration deal for William Patterson students, it's only $74. It's a $25 discount because you guys are part of our academic partnership program. So it's $74 for three days of incomparable learning, networking, meeting experiences, and even more so, we've added this year um, a career day interview opportunity. And I know a lot of the William Patterson students who are registered have signed up. I think even like five or six just in the past day, uh, this is an opportunity to get kind of a speed dating interview 
for internships or possibly, you know, jobs down the road um, with 14 really interesting, diverse uh, industry companies, including Universal, Sony, Warner, um, Country Music Association, CSAC, um, CAA, which is you know, incredible artist management organization. So that's another possibility. There's a, a, a student meetup taking place. Pandora has come in as a sponsor for a concert. We're waiting to announce. Uh, we haven't announced the artist yet, but uh, I can tell you it's going to be somebody amazing and current that everybody's going to be excited about uh, for our awards luncheon. We're honoring uh, Halsey and Sam Hunt, along with Little Big Town and Cheap Trick and the T.J. Martell Foundation. I mean, it's just, you know, since we last spoke, it's really just come together in such an incredible way that I'm so, so, so thrilled that you've got such a great group coming, that you're going to be doing the radio uh, interviews for the podcast. It's just, it's, it's going to turn out to really be, I think it's going to be an experience for all 20 of the, 20 or so of the students. It's something that they really will look back on and that they will, you know, they will remember as they sort of take their steps uh, into finishing their education and going into their careers. I'm hoping it'll be something that they will look back on really fondly that, that was hopefully um, a pivoting point for them based on somebody they met or an internship that they got, who knows. That's, that's great. I mean, we're very excited. We met with some grad students who are going, uh, getting their MBA in music management uh, last night. And without any prodding, a couple of them were saying, I can't wait to go. So everybody is, on this end is extremely excited about heading out to Nashville in May. Yeah. I mean, in addition to all the things I just talked about, I think it'll also be a really interesting experience for them to commune, as it were, with students from around the country that are sort of like-minded. They're, they're studying the same things. They're looking at the same things <clears throat> that they are. And we're going to have probably more than 100, it's amazing, more than 100 music business students from around the country, from a variety of colleges and universities. I think that aspect of it is also exciting because it's not like they're going to be there on their own. They're going to be there alone. They're going to get to meet a lot of, of young people you know, that are their age, that are studying what they're studying, you know, and they can, those may turn into friendships and relationships that, you know, who knows where they will lead. It's all about, you know, I'm a professor as, as well, and it's all about putting yourself out there, making the connections, making the, the opportunities happen for yourself. It, the music business is, is really about relationships. You know, when you're starting out all the way through, I mean, I'm 30 years into this, and I still have friends and, and relationships that I made in the very first year that I started doing this. And that is what sustains you, those friendships and those relationships. And, you know, coming to an event like this is the perfect forum um, to make that happen. So we're talking about the Music Business Association event happening in Nashville, May 16th through the 18th. Go to musicbiz.org, click on event, and then there'll be a pull down, and you can click on the 2016 Music Biz event, and you can register. You can uh, get your hotel uh, reservations. You can see the schedule. There's a lot of stuff going on. Jim, it's going to be awesome. Yes, and thank you so much for inviting me back and giving me a chance to cheerlead for the event, and I will look forward to seeing you and seeing Steve and 
and and the rest of the crew there in about five or so weeks. Yes, it, it is coming up, and we will talk before then anyway. But thank you so much, Jim, for calling in tonight. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. All right, that's James Donio, President, Music Biz Association. And Bianca Russo. People were, so we're trying to work out. Uh, we believed that we could have multiple callers call in uh, at the same time. And did so, Bianca, did it not work? Um, I don't think so because I was trying to pick up the other lines, but it wouldn't let me. Okay, so uh, John Cher was supposed to be in the studio with us, but he had uh, something come up, so he's calling in, and he should call in probably within the next 35 seconds. Hopefully he already called. And um, But that, that was great what uh, what Jim was talking about because it's, uh, ooh, somebody's calling. While, while that's going on, we want to give a couple thanks. First, let's give thanks to Van Dyne Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, Sharon Jones, the Dap Kings, and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you are ready. And also thanks to Christine Vey a wealth manager and the president of Vey Wealth Managing Management. Christine has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson to manage their investments and plan out their retirement. If you, you, yes, you are looking for guidance on how to plan your retirement, yes, your retirement, or if you have questions on anything from investments and portfolio management to insurance and retirement planning, please, please give Christine a call. 732-455-1510. In America, that's 732-455-1510. If you'd like, and this is welcome, you may email her, Christine at Wealth. Com. As Dr. Marconi says, no portfolio is too small. Correct? Or is it too large? I always mess it up. No portfolio I've never is... I've heard him say that. So he says it all I, the time. I don't time. know. Uh, okay, that's because you do not listen. As soon as the producer uh, pushes up the dials, then uh, she tunes out. Who called in? Uh, our guest. Our guest, John Cher? Yes. John Cher, are you on the other line with us tonight? John Cher. Legendary concert promoter John Cher. We, I hear you, John. No, I don't hear you at all. Hopefully, you hear us. This is like what happened with uh, Doc McGee a couple weeks ago. He's still on the other line, though. Um, I'm assuming. Okay, John Cher. Do you hear him? Hello. Hello. No. No. <laughs> Did he hang? He has been okay. Please. Uh, or maybe not. All right, uh, Marconi is upset because he called and no one picked up. Uh, I am telling him now to stream it live to hear what happened. Okay, uh, so as you can tell, this is really going well so far. Uh, as John Share calls back in, I'll give you a brief bio. John Share is the CEO at Metropolitan Entertainment Consultants. It is a multifaceted entertainment company concentrating on concert production, artist management, theatrical production, national touring, and consulting various venues such as performing arts centers. John Cher was named Polestar Magazine's Bill Graham Promoter of the Year in the year 2000. He was inducted into Performance Magazine's Touring Hall of Fame in 1992 and Performance Magazine's Top Grossing Promoter in the Nation three times. John created the first division of a major record company, and this division was called Polygram Diversified Entertainment, and it exploited content of its artists and others in various segments of the entertainment business, such as merchandising, theater, PBS, cable, and pay-per-view television, artist management, national touring, and concert promotion. Gina Royale, pretty impressive, huh? 
Oh, yeah. Is John Cher, we're, is it, John, are you here? I can hear everything you said all along. Can you oh, hear me? Yeah, now we hear you, John. Here we go. Sorry, dead air is, is radio's worst friend. So uh, while we had the dead air, we were able to tell the people all about you. Thank you so much for calling in to Music Biz 101 and more. It's great to, to meet you verbally for the first time ever. Happy to do so. Thank you so much. Um, why don't you, real quick, I know uh, Dr. Steve Marconi has met you a number of times. He could not be here tonight. He was trying to call in, and we've had issues with the uh, having multiple people call in. So unless we can get him, it's going to be myself, our producer, Bianca Russo, and we have a student named Gina Royale who is here tonight with you uh, as well. Um, I hope I can handle all three of you. I know, it's, it's, it's going to be quite a bit, and I don't know if you have the experience, John, but we will certainly see. Uh, why don't we start with this? There was a quote that I found that you had said, I believe it was to the uh, Star-Ledger, a number of years ago, not too long ago, and you said, the most important person I'm marketing to is not inside the theater. It's the person whose friends are inside and who can't get in, because if that show is good, that person will never make that mistake again. Yep. It's an accurate quote. Explain, explain kind of what the, the theory was behind what you were saying when you said that. Well, you know, things are a, a bit different these days. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's simple enough. You know, people who procrastinate, you know, like an act, say, I'll go see them. Uh, and they procrastinate too long. Well, very often, and certainly through my history, um, shows sell out. And once they decide to go, they can't get in. But they've got friends that are a little brighter than them and uh, bought tickets ahead of time, uh, you know, and come out of the show and call their friends and say, God, did you miss something great? Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and go on and on, you know, uh, about the show. Uh, that, that person who didn't make it, not going to make the mistake next time that act comes around. Tell us, because there, there are a lot of people, the, the, the word concert promoter, is thrown around, but I don't know if everybody knows exactly the specifics of really what it is to be a concert promoter. Can you get into all the gory details, maybe the stuff that uh, the people don't see on the outside that really goes into it, from from all the organization to all the hair, you know, pulling your hair out over things? Can you kind of get into that? Um, well, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's a, you know, it's a very entrepreneurial uh, position. Uh, you're you're risking uh, you're risking your own money. Uh, that's changed quite a bit in the last number of years with Live Nation and AEG, who are you know big in Live, Live Nation's case, big public company. But you know, for all the years, I mean, I I started when I was 20 years old in 1971 in the Capitol Theater in Passaic. Uh, you know, it was all my own money, and uh, you know, if the shows are successful. You make some money, but if they're not successful, and they're all not successful, um, you're losing the money. So, you know, you're very careful with the deals that you make. You have to really stay on top and have a staff that stays on top of what's current in the music world. Uh, you need to do a lot of scouting, the scene acts, especially young bands. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you, you negotiate with, with an agent. Um, the act never loses money because they, they're guaranteed a certain amount of money, um, you know, sometimes an enormous amount of money, sometimes a million dollars a night. Um, and uh, you, you make that negotiation and you work out the finer details of the, of, of the contract. Uh, then you've got to map out, 
you know, and this is all done with with, with a really good staff on my part. Um, you got to map out a marketing plan um, where you're gonna, you know, where you're gonna advertise, what kind of social uh, networking you can you, you can do. You put the tickets on sale. You keep the marketing going, you know, right up until showtime, unless it sells out in advance, which you know still happens. So we've got a Tedeschi truck show at NJ Pack in a couple of weeks, and it's been you know it's completely sold out. Um, and uh, you know you have to have uh, good production people, people who uh, can interact with the with the artists' production people. Uh, and and uh, you know overall you got to you know you got to be a good caterer because the acts expect to be fed well. Um, you got to have good security. Uh, you have to you know try to you know have a, uh, a an event friendly uh, kind of atmosphere so people you know you got to respect the respect the customers respect the ticket holders. Um, so you know all that goes into being a promoter. Now, we, you, you kind of brought it up a little bit. When we talk about artists, and we, and we talk here in our classes, we talk about an artist team. When we're talking to a promoter, what are the various positions on your team to help you get everything done and done the right way? Well, um, we, you know, we've got uh, two other uh, uh, talent buyers, uh, and the, the talent buyers, with, together with me, you know, sort of oversee each particular show. Um, we've got a terrific uh, produ- head production guy and a couple of part-time guys if we have more, show, more than one show a night. Um, we've got a PR specialist. We've got a uh, advertising marketing specialist. We have a social networking specialist. Um, and uh, we have a, a, a box o- somebody who you know, runs our box offices and you know takes care of dealing with uh, whether the company's ticket fly or, or ticket master or, or whoever, um, so the, you know those that that that's the team. You know that's the team, and uh, uh, we have to. You know everybody's got to coordinate. Everybody's got to care about everybody else's problems, uh, and you know so far so good. Now you're different from Live Nation in that you don't own venues, but a, a venue like uh, in Newark, the. Uh, the North Pack, for example, Performing Arts Center. Um, do you explain sort of the uh, process when you want to book an act for, for the North uh, Performing Arts Center? Do you call them and look for free dates? Are you working together all along? How, how in conju- And then I guess you're working with agents too. So how well, well, do we, all that? In the case of NJ Pack, we, you know, we've got a, a special relationship and a special deal, and um, we produced uh, you know, almost all of the rock and pop uh, shows with them. We're, you know, we're in touch with them, you know, nearly on a daily basis, but certainly a few times a week. Um, you know, and you've got to find the available dates, which in a venue like that, that's so busy with other things, with, with classical music, with dance, with, you know, Chinese acrobats, with, you know, whatever, you, you know, you have to match up a date that the act's available. Uh, and, uh, you know, we work, we work, you know, very, very closely with them. In in other venues, say the Beacon Theater, um, you know, or Radio City Music Hall, or uh, the Theater at Madison Square Garden, or any of the arenas, whether it be Prudential, Madison Square Garden, Barclays, um, we rent them. You know, you you rent you rent for the day. You pay. You know, you negotiate, try to negotiate the best deal you can with the with the building. 
and uh, you rent them, and again, you know, you're 100% at risk. The buildings aren't at risk. The promoters are the last ones to get paid. The act gets paid, the building gets paid, all of the staffing gets paid, and if there's anything left, then the promoter makes money. Um, so, um, you know, we, you know, we, we, we consult some people. We can, we consult the, uh, the performing arts center, the Adrian Arts Performing Arts Center in, in, uh, in Miami. Um, and, you know, we do shows really mostly all over the Northeast and, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it works out, you know, just fine. We have one fabulous venue that we, we do book exclusively, uh, called the Concert Hall at the New York Society for Ethical Culture. It's this beautiful, beautiful 1800, I'm sorry, 1800-seater um, on 64th Street in Central Park West. Um, and, uh, you know, we do about 25 shows or so a year there. It's, uh, it, it, it's a gem. It's a hidden gem. Nobody knew about it. We started doing shows there about five years ago. Had, the building's 102 years old now, I think, this year. They'd never had a concert in there, ever. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I said, now we're doing, you know, 25, 30 shows, uh, you know, some acts that are bigger acts that, that, um, you know, want to do an underplay, some acts that are, you know, up and coming, uh, and everything in between. When we talk about revenue streams for, for an artist, and I keep going back to the artist because most, uh, what you do to me is 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 not always 100% known to people, um, and that's why I, I people understand that the artist and the artist has the revenue streams of live performance, publishing, recording, sync, things like that. For a promoter, uh, I, you, when you mentioned that you consult for the uh, venue down in Florida, uh, revenue streams for you, I guess that consultant fee, and then uh, from what you know, from all the risk, whatever revenue earn you earn from shows, are there any other revenue streams that you have that come in to help you uh, balance the books, basically, and ha- and maybe have less risk and not put all the eggs in one basket? Well, in the case of places where we just consult, like the Art Center in in Miami, we you know we get a fee. We get a yearly fee, um, and you know we, they've got in-house in-house uh, concert bookers. But you know we sort of oversee that, and you know make suggestions, have a conference call or an in-person meeting every week, uh, and uh, you know there's a lot of competition uh, down there as there is up here. Um, so you know we 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 try to use our history, our experience, our expertise. Uh, you know, to, to help them get, get shows and get, get fair deals. Um, you know, in, in most other cases, we're either completely at risk um, or in some cases we'll co-promote shows. Um, you know, we sort of have a hybrid deal with NJ, with, with, with NJ Pack where, you know, we, we, both, we both have some risk. Um, so, you know, there's different, there's, there, there's different deals. We just uh, actually announced this week, we're going to do a series of shows on the Circle Line uh, around Manhattan, uh, and uh, you know, floating floating. They turn them into a floating nightclub. Great sound, uh, you know, pretty cool difference. In that case, we're you know we're fifty fifty partners with the people who own Circle Line. Uh, so you know, there's all kinds of different deals that that you can do, um, and uh, we sort of look at everything and see if it makes sense. Uh, Steve Marconi uh, tweeted in a question for you, 
and actually it was, it was by text. Um, he mentioned how in the 1970s, because you, you mentioned Capitol Theater, 1970 or 71? 71 it opened. 71, and you had territory that went all the way up to Massachusetts, um, out to Rochester, obviously in New Jersey. Uh, how big was your territory then, and how, um, and there were other regional concert promoters like yourself uh, during that era. Um, how did you guys carve out what your, I guess, your territory was? And how um, big was yours? Hand-to-hand combat, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you, you, you develop relationships with, with certain ages, agents, and, and, and venues and radio stations, uh, uh, you know, in a market-by-market. Market. Uh, and, you know, in those days, it, it, it mattered a lot, you know, right up probably till you know, the early 2000s. If you did a good job, if you, you know, you had that extra little relationship with, you know, whether it be uh, a radio station, a website, or whatever, and um, your partners, you're, you're really partners with the act. I mean, you're not, uh, actually, but, you know, the, the more you can do to help them sell tickets and, in turn, help them sell records, uh, the better the relationship is. Uh, so, you know, we were, at first I started out, uh, you know, I grew up in Jersey, uh, and uh, I was, uh, you know, I was sort of a Fillmore East baby, which probably very few of your listeners know what that was, but it was a, a theater on 2nd Avenue from about, I think, 1968 to 1971 that was, uh, you know, the, the, the model for, you know, all, all rock concert halls that, that followed it, uh, you know, probably for 20 years. A guy named Bill Graham was the promoter, um, and I was in college at that point. I was going to college in Brooklyn, and um, you know, I went to the Fillmore probably you know 30 times a year, uh, and uh, you know, I was uh, you know I was caught up in, in 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 the idea of promoting, and because I grew up in Jersey, I knew very few shows came to Jersey during during those days, and I came to find out that Fillmore East had like a 75-mile exclusivity. So, you know, all of northern and central Jersey fell into that, and the only way you could get shows was if an act was really touring a lot, you know, and, and, you know, say six months after they played played New York. So in those days, um, you you know, we did 40 or 50 shows a year at the Capitol, We'd do another 20 down in Convention Hall in Asbury Park. Um, you know, we did shows in lots of different places. At Uppsala College, which isn't there anymore. Um, we did them at, uh, at FDU. Uh, we did them at uh, Newark State, which is now Keene. Uh, we did it in, in, in Rutgers when they, when they built the rack. Um, you know, and we, we did, uh, you know, a lot of outdoor shows at an old, Triple A baseball park that was in Jersey City, some really big acts, thirty-five thousand capacity, um, and then you know once uh, once Gi- Giant Stadium got built and the Meadowlands Arena got built, we started doing you know most of the shows uh, in those places, and uh, you know during that whole time, it was a matter of doing your job well, uh, being immersed in the music, and with the, the people behind the scenes, uh, and doing a good job. So, um, you know, during the 70s and the 80s into the 90s, you know, we did, 
huge majority of shows in Jersey. We were probably doing about 50% of the shows in, uh, in New York City uh, once we went into New York. Um, and we did a lot of shows in upstate New York, in Rochester and Buffalo, Syracuse, Albany. Um, and, uh, you know, some shows in, uh, in eastern Pennsylvania, Wilkes-Barre, Scranton, places like that. Um, and there, there was, during most of that time, sort of an unspoken rule that was loosely administrated by, um, you know, the most important agent, booking agent that ever, you know, that ever existed, a guy named Frank Barcelona, who's since passed away, um, you know, ran a company called Premier Talent, which had, you know, a huge number of, of uh, successful acts, both big and medium-sized. Um, and, you know, he always felt that, um, you know, the, the, the best way to tour his acts was having reliable local promoters or people that worked in those markets a lot. So, you know, you had the relationships with radio and you had the relationships with, with, uh, with the journalist, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, um, you know, he sort of treated it like it was Major League Baseball. And I was the sort of second generation. The first generation of concert promoters were anywhere from 10 to 20 years older than I was. Um, and so, you know, when, when, when I started, it was really after the Fillmore East closed. Well, actually before, you know, some of the shows in all these theaters, I mean, all these colleges I told you about, um, I really, you know, started doing doing shows while I was still in college um, in Jersey, you know, and, you know, it wasn't a lot of shows, but then the Fillmore closed in, um, you know, in, in, in June of 1971, and, uh, you know, our, you know, we had our, our, our feet firmly in, in the ground, and we found the Capitol. It was a 3,500-seater um, old vaudeville house, uh, and, you know, I, you know, I, I went, you know, to, into the city and out to L.A. and, you know, talked to all the important agents and, you know, very carefully pitched northern central Jersey separate market to New York. Uh, I, I, you know, I remember, you know, you know, always telling them the old 201 area code, which went from, you know, from from northern border of New Jersey till probably, you know, a little a little south of of uh, New Brunswick. Um, like Princeton was the first town that was a 609 area code. So that northern central Jersey, uh, you know, at the time in the 70s, 80s, you know, had uh, uh, six million people living there, which one could argue might have made it the third or fourth biggest market in the country. Um, the problem was it wasn't recognized it that way because there was no really major city. After the riots in Newark of uh, 67, I think it was, um, before that, Newark was a big city. It had major, major corporate headquarters. Um, it was the second biggest uh, city in, in the world from an insurance point of view. Uh, Prudential's still there, but Mutual Benefit Life used to be there and a number of other ones. But once the riots hit, you know, Newark dropped off the map. And, uh, but still, there were these 6 million people, which now in what was the old 201 area code, 
there are 8 million people. Uh, and, uh, you know, then it was relatively inexpensive to go into New York City uh, to see a show, but it was still a schlep for, for, for most people. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was able to convince uh, the agents, principally Frank Barcelona, that, you know, there was a market in northern Jersey that had nothing to do with New York City. Um, and, um, you know, we opened the Capitol. It was uh, successful from the moment we opened it up. It opened up with uh, Humble Pie and the Jay Giles Band. Uh, you know, and I'd say 90% of the shows we did there over 18 years were were successful. And it became, you know, it became a pretty famous place on a lot of different levels. And a lot of acts, you know, played early in their careers there. Springsteen did, Billy Joel did. Um, but it became, you know, so much of a cool place to play that the Rolling Stones came and played there, the Who came and played there. Um, you know, so some, you know, giant acts. Genesis came and played there, uh, you know, would sort of, you know, play their, their, their sort of intimate show. You know, that wasn't in arenas or stadiums at the Capitol. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was exciting times. It was exciting times with the music. It was exciting times in the music business. Uh, so this sort of major league lineup of major cities, um, you know, became a reality. And not all of the agents, but most of the agents followed Frank Barcelona's um, lead, you know, uh, you know for, for all the right reasons. Um, so, like I said, that first started while I was probably still in high school. Um, and it only encompassed maybe, you know, 15 promoters. Um, so when I, you know, first started to make my move and bought the Capitol and started running shows there um, and proved from the very beginning that Jersey was a very fertile uh, uh, concert market, um, you know, I got supported by everybody. Again, it started with Frank, but I got supported with everybody, and the Capitol became famous, and then Roosevelt Stadium, you know, became the place to play for a number of years. Uh, giant, giant stadium after that. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, little by little, other towns grew. You know, other cities grew, and either... Some of the established promoters stretched, you know, to to, to a market. In other words, a big concert promoter in Milwaukee. Suddenly Madison was becoming a pretty big market uh, and, uh, you know, went up there. Or somebody local in Madison, all right, started saying, hey, if you're coming to Milwaukee, you might as well come to Madison. And, uh, you know, that became probably, I don't know, close to 100 cities that, could support concert business. Uh, and uh, so about 10 years into my beginnings, and I'd never, I never stepped over the border to New York from a, you know, from a business point of view. It was an area that, you know, had been designated to a number of people, but at the time, uh, you know, Ron Delsner, who's still doing shows, um, was, was, was doing it. Uh, and then, you know, sort of the story of how I started going into into Manhattan, into Nassau, um, you know, had to do with, you know, Ron and I were friends. Ron's a 
about 15 years older than me, um, but we were friends. And uh, one day he asked me uh, to come have uh, um, lunch with him. So, you know, I came into the city, you know, not expecting anything more than a bit of a social lunch. And that was uh, when they had just broken ground for Meadowlands Arena, Brendan Byrne, Continental, Izod, all the same building. Uh, and um, Ron looked at me, you know, and he said, uh, look, we're going to be partners on the shows in the, at the Meadowlands, right? I said, well, why would we possibly be partners? I've been in Jersey playing smaller shows for 10 years now at the time, um, maybe even 11 or 12. Um, why would I, why, you know, <clears throat> why would I partner with you if I'm playing acts at clubs and, 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 and the capital and they're growing up and they're loyal to me? Why would I partner with you? And he said, well, what's going to happen is instead of them playing two shows at the Garden, they're going to play one at the Garden and one at the Meadowlands. You know, and I said, you know, not my fault. I never bothered you at the garden. So uh, he threatened me, and he said, you know, I'm going to put you out of business. You'll see. And the guy who worked for him, uh, good guy, you know, took me aside after the meeting was over and said, you know, Ron's really very popular. You know, he's going to put you out of business. Um, so I said, you know, let the, let the, let the chip fall where they may. Uh, and over the next, um, you know, five or eight years, um, not only did we do continue to do about 90% of the shows in New Jersey, and, and at least 90%, if not more, of the shows at the, the, the Meadowlands, but you know that gave me a reason to go into New York, and uh, I got everybody's blessings, all the agents' blessings and stuff. Um, you know, Delsner, you know, struck first. Um, he got very, very few shows in New Jersey. Um, and, uh, you know, his, his big breakthrough in New Jersey was he agreed to um, uh, book the, uh, was in the, the uh, Garden State Art Center, now PNC, for a very, very small fee. I had the opportunity, but, you know, it was a tiny fee, and, um, you know, uh, it just it didn't make any sense to me. But, he, you know, he wanted to put his, you know, flag in the ground somewhere. Um, and you know, and that you know that, break, you know, breakup of, of 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 the marketplace, you know, sort of stuck until you know pretty much the you know early 2000s. Um, we got to the point where we were doing as many, if not more, shows in New York uh, than he was doing at the Garden, at Nassau Coliseum, at the Beacon. Um, we we. Uh, uh, we're very instrumental uh, in building Hammerstein Ballroom, um, and uh, you know, so um, modestly we cleaned his clock. Um, but things things started to change, and there became SFX, which became Clear Channel, which became Live Nation, uh, and deals started getting ridiculous. Uh, and when you say deals start getting ridiculous, in, in how so? The risk, the risk reward, mm -hmm. was and now to a large degree stupid, all right? Because once once Live Nation and its predecessors really got together, they had enormously deep pockets. You know, they went public, they had enormous money. Now, as best as I understand it, uh, they've never made a profit. They're a public company. You can all look it up. Um, 
They've never made a profit, yet they throw money around, uh, you know, with abandon. And, uh, you know, so, you know, you'd be in a position where, you know, they and then AEG followed them um, that would go to an act and say, how much money do you guys want? And they'd say, well, you know, our minimum guarantee is $200,000, let's say, for an arena. And they'd say, okay, how about if we gave you 250, all right, but we want every date in the country? A lot of acts did that. A lot of acts did it. A lot of acts that, you know, we played for years and years and years, you know, suddenly just took the money and ran. I mean, Rush took the money and ran. The, the Who took the money and ran. Um, you know, I'd give you a whole, you know, whole list of them. Um, some stayed loyal. Um, and then... As time has gone on in the last decade, the, the, these two big conglomerates have become really stronger than the agents. And, you know, to, to some degree at least, the agents are scared of them. They're, they're afraid that if they don't deal with them, the, the, the two big companies will go behind their back to the managers and cut out the agent. Um, so the agents sort of have no choice but to... You know, go get those offers, and and you know there there are a lot of managers that uh, you know can't resist can't resist the money. At the end of the day, the independent promoters might make the act more money at the end of the day than what the guarantee was, because you know not just me, but there's you know there's a dozen of us out there um, that you know just built a better mousetrap, and we know our market's better. We we work to the very end. Uh, and, uh, you know, in those cases, you know, uh, the manager, managers have, have stayed loyal. You know? And, uh, you, know, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's so with, you know, uh, Metallica, with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, with Iron Maiden, uh, with Jason Mraz, with, uh, um, you know, Lincoln Park. Uh, you know, there's a lot of acts that the managers understand that it's not about just a guarantee, it's about how much money they make at the end of the show. Um, so, you know, that's the state of the industry now, and, and, and what it's done, you know, the worst thing that it's done, well, the two worst things it's done is, one, uh, it's made ticket prices sky high. You know, very hard to see a major show anymore that the ticket prices you know, for good seats, less than $100. Um, and, you know, in my view, what that does is it cuts out uh, the middle-class middle, middle class America. It cuts out college kids, um, you know, who just can't afford, you know, to pay, you know, 100 dollars to go to shows. And nobody wants to go sit, you know, in the third deck, you know, 150 yards away from the stage. I mean, people do. You know, for very, very big acts, but um, you know, most of the acts, again, you know, let that escalate. I mean, I, I think I saw the other day a chart. Um, you know, Bruce Springsteen's average ticket, average ticket was over a hundred dollars. You know, man of the people, he stuck to he stuck to it for a long time, but now he's even given in, um, and he doesn't do national tours with with. Uh, with with one promoter, but you know, he, he can get a, easily get an average ticket of a hundred dollars, and 
you know, he does it. So, I mean, a, a, a couple of years ago, I taught a class at NYU, uh, and and uh, you know, on on concert promoting. And the, the first, my first class, I had about twenty-two or twenty-three students. I asked, uh, you know, how often do you go to major concerts? You know, and I said, you know, from say three thousand seat theater, you know, up. Not one person raised their hand. Now, these are kids that were going and were studying the music business. They were going to try and they were trying to graduate NYU with a degree in the music business. Uh, and so I really dug into that over the next number of classes, and and this was a good six or eight years ago. Um, and and basically, you know what what the students you know all said was, I can't afford. I can't afford. To, I can hardly afford to go to the Beacon, let alone Radio City, let alone Madison Square Garden, let alone you know anything like that. You know, I just I don't have the money. Um, you know, and I'll say, well, your passion for music, oh, yeah, what do you do? Well, we go to a lot of clubs, and that's one of the reasons why the club business is incredibly healthy in New York. Um, not so much in New Jersey, which is sort of a shame, um, but, uh, you know, it's, you know, we're cannibalizing as an industry, we're cannibalizing our own audience. You know, we, we're not being able to turn young people on to, uh, onto shows once the acts, you know, get big, even if they follow the act from, you know, from little clubs to big clubs to, to theaters. Um, so, you know, I think that the industry's in for a rude awakening over the next number of years, um, you know, because of that. Uh, so, um, you know, it's one of the, it's, it, you know, it's one of the real problems uh, that, that one faces. And then the other thing is, is that, um, Live Nation bought Ticketmaster, and uh, um, so you know that smart by them. They're getting that income uh, also, but then they started to develop their own secondary ticket market, um, and so now you've got a company that's promoting the show, selling the ticket, and then reselling the ticket, um, and. Uh, you know, the Justice Department seems to think that's okay. Uh, I, I don't think so. I think it stinks. But, um, you know, and you've got StubHub and you've got your street hustlers, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, scalping has always been a problem since I've been in the business, but now it's completely and utterly out of hand. Uh, Marconi sent me a uh, text and said, he, he said, one time you recorded saying that ticket prices were set by the scalpers. Do you did you still feel that way? What did you mean when you said that? Well, I I, I think what happened, and one of the reasons that ticket prices have gotten so high for major concerts is that um, you know the agents, the managers, the business managers, the lawyers, um, and the promoters said, you know, I used to often say back in the '80s and '90s on a sold-out show, the scalpers were making more money than I was on my show and had no risk. Um, because, you know, the scalpers were, were, were marking ticket prices, you know, up. People were buying them. So there was a need. So there was, sociologically, there was, uh, you know, the, there was something obvious going on, which was X number of people will pay, you know, a lot more money than you're setting the ticket price at. Uh, so, 
you know, what 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 happened is, you know, scalpers market by market, you know, New York and New Jersey is a wealthier than, you know, than in Jackson, Mississippi or, you know, you know, Duluth or anything like that, but you know, there started to be there started to be a pattern and you know, once the internet became a reality, you know, it's very easy to just go on the internet and see what the you know, what the scalpers are charging uh, for tickets, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you try to keep them out of their hands. Um, but, you know, there's a political lobby out there, believe it or not, and it's in New Jersey uh, as much as any place else that uh, manages to keep their uh, the, the government from passing anti-scalping laws. We, we had a very, very good one when Tom Kane was was uh, was governor. He, he signed the law. You know, I you know I worked him pretty hard. He he actually I've got the pen that he signed the law with. He gave it to me. Um, but you know, eventually the law got changed because the scalp scalpers have big money and big lobbyists. Believe it or not. So uh, you know, when acts are setting ticket prices uh, with promoters, they sort of know what the scalpers are, are you know are, are getting, and although. They might not set the ticket as high as the scalpers are getting. They'll get closer to it. So if the scalpers are getting, you know, $150 for your $65 ticket, um, a lot of the acts will say, well, let's charge 100 Let's see if people will buy 100 And, of course, people bought it at 100 because it was cheaper than 150 You know, it was that simple. Um, but scalping is still, you know, a curse out there. And, and like I said, I think it's both ticket prices um, and, and, and the scalping is just keeping millions and millions and millions of people of all ages from being able to go to a lot of, a lot of concerts. Okay. Uh, we have four minutes left. So uh, this has been great. And right now um – before I've even asked, I want to call this John Share Part One because I have a thousand questions for you, and we're going to get to like two more. Um, could we read a tweet to you? Sure. All right. Uh, Gina Royale is going to read this tweet here. It's basically about VIP packages. Hi, uh, German Sanchez is asking: Is John Share involved in creating special packages that vary in price for the concerts that he promotes? Well, involved is a funny word. Um, I frown on it, um, but a lot of acts want to do it, and it's sort of, you know, make no mistake about it. Concert tickets, the cost of concert tickets, the cost of VIP packages are set by the acts. You know, I'm sorry to disappoint people who love their acts and think they're, you know, they're, 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 they're all great people. <laughs> um, you know, when you're when when you're a promoter, you do what the act tells you to do from a ticket pricing point of view. So uh, there's a lot of VIP stuff. The artists generally try to keep all of that uplift. Once in a while, we're we're successful in looking at the acts and saying, you know, this is not fair. We're the ones that are at risk. You know, might you share some of that? Uh, they do, but no. And you know, I would I would be fine if VIP ticketing was you know, against the law, but, you know, it's not going to be. And, uh, you know, there's certain people that that will pay that extra money to go have a meet and greet and shake hands with, uh, 
you know, with, with, with the axe and, you know, maybe chat with him for 30 seconds, uh, you know, and get a T-shirt or, or, or whatever. So there's a market out there for it, you know, free enterprise. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, do I have anything to do with it? You know, indirectly I have no choice, um, but uh, I don't condone it. Okay, and I, I think, unfortunately, we have to leave it there because we have to be off the air in two minutes. They can play lots of uh, public service announcements for the public. Okay. Um, but what I would love to do, I will be in contact with you and see if we can get you on maybe in the fall, maybe get you out here uh, if you'd be open to it and you have the time because you are a wealth of knowledge and we've only touched uh, about all the different topics that we could cover with you. Is, is that okay? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I love to to uh, interact with uh, with the public, uh, you know, and get their ideas of, you know, what they like, what they don't like. Um, so, um, sure, we'll try to work something out. Yeah, I think it's great because cause you, you kind of brought up the promoter has been thought of as the bad guy, you know, yeah. the promoter, the ticketing company. You guys are the bad guys, and the artists are, are, are you know, holier than thou. And I'm, I'm happy that you brought up that, you know, it's, it's, that's not always the case. Well, it's never the case. Yeah. You know, every everything good or bad that actually happens at a show has to be approved by the artist. But you know, they're representatives. You know, you're not, you know, you're not going to Pete Townsend and asking him. But mm-hmm. you know, he's got a manager and an agent, and uh, you, you know, you really can't do a thing without them signing off on it. Yeah, and that's that. that there's a lot to get into. So, uh, John Sher, thank you so much for appearing on Music Biz 101 and more. And I can't wait to speak with you again in the very near future. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Thanks, John. Okay. And that was an awesome interview with John Sher. We got one. It was one tweet. Yeah. We got the one tweet. So Gina Royale, uh, the Ooh. unused Gina Royale here. But uh, it, this is going to be an awesome podcast. You're going to have to go to uh, SoundCloud, iTunes. And you're going to have to check out Music Biz 101 and more. This podcast will be up in probably a week. Uh, there's tremendous, tremendous stuff that he talked about. And I, I can't wait, actually, to listen back to it. So uh, visit MusicBiz101WP.com. Sign up for a weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at MusicBiz101WP. We want to thank Bianca Russo, who is our producer of the night. Thank you, Bianca Russo. So great to have you. We want to thank Gina Royale for being Gina Royale. Buy her most recent album, which is called? Hair. H-E-I-R. H-E-I-R. But not hair. <laughs> That's right. The 60s soundtrack. We want to thank Dr. Esteban Marconi, who is texting in massively with his one thumb. Thank you, Dr. Esteban. He will be back next week. Next week is April 13th, year of our Lord, 2016. We are going to have... The Summer of Love people, Tony Palagrosi, Glenn Burtnick, Rich Russo. We're going to talk about that the following week. We're going to have Rob Fusari. We're listening to Don't Let Love Down right now. And uh, a lot of great stuff coming up. So Music Biz 101 and more. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all of your tweets. Next time we have John Sharon, we're going to read your tweets from tonight. Thank you so much. And in, 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 in my own words, we're not going to say hello to you ever again. But we are going to say...
Community.